economy grew by almost 5% this quarter. This is the fifth straight quarter of economic growth. And guess what it's driven by? Historic investments in our infrastructure. Yeah, it's one of those things, right? The economy is doing great if you don't buy food, pay for housing, or buy gas. Like, all of those things are still ridiculously expensive. Consumer spending is up, inflation has leveled out, and there's no recession on the horizon. It's a total farce, and I think 60, 60 plus percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, uh, and the billionaires are getting richer and richer, and guess what? Bidenomics is working. Democrats are not acknowledging their problem. They're saying that, like, <laughs> everything's great. Inflation is going down. What are you talking about? That's Bidenomics in action. That's Bidenomics in action. This is Bidenomics in action. It's really disempowering to be told in a whole bunch of weird covered ways that you're an idiot. Welcome to On Strike, a production of Workers Strike Back. I'm Bia Lacombe. And I'm Shama Savant. On October 26th, United States President Joe Biden posted a message on X, formerly known as Twitter, saying, quote, On my watch, we're growing the economy by growing the middle class, and we're proving the folks wrong who projected we couldn't do it, end quote. This is a popular theme with the Democratic leadership that the economy is going gangbusters and we are all apparently just too stupid to notice. Biden started running a victory lap at the end of October when the U.S. Department of Commerce reported that the nation's gross domestic product, or GDP, had grown at a rate of nearly 5% in the third quarter of this year. The GDP is a measure of all the goods and services produced in a given moment, and GDP growth rate is used as the principal indicator of how well the capitalist economy is doing. So Biden and the Democratic Party see this GDP growth rate and the currently low unemployment levels as proof that Biden's program for the economy, which they actually like to call Bidenomics, believe it or not, has been a smashing success. The White House is touting Bidenomics as their set of supposedly brilliant economic policies that they believe will deliver them the election next year. It's true that a nearly 5% GDP growth rate certainly sounds better than the imminent recession economists have been predicting, and Biden and the Democrats and most of the mainstream corporate media are all saying, buck up, all you complainers, Bidenomics is working. Jobs, jobs, jobs. The private sector witnessed a big hiring spike last month. A blowout, upside surprise on the ADP report. I got 497,000. I got a double take number here. Companies added nearly half a million jobs in June. That is double what economists have predicted. Guess what? Bidenomics is working. But what is the experience of working class Americans? While inflation has cooled in recent months, the price of almost everything working people depend on has shot through the roof since the COVID pandemic began. And wages have just not kept pace. Bread and other baked goods went up 16.4% in one year alone, as reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in September of last year. The same study found that dairy products went up 16.2%. In January of last year, a dozen large grade A eggs would have cost you $1.93. By January of this year, that number shot up to $4.82. That's a whopping 150% increase. Yeah, I mean, the cost of food just goes up and up. I swear, I almost cry every time I leave the grocery store. Um, it just feels like dollars go less and less far. Has this impacted how much you guys buy eggs? How Absolutely. Often? I yeah. still buy eggs. I'm gluten-free, so like everything that I need to eat to like not be sick is like 
20 times more expensive. I try to cook most of the time and my grocery bill is like never less than $75. And it's just like ingredients. Our grocery bill has gone up from like $160, $180 a week for a family of four to like close to $300, um, $300 a week. We're spending, yeah, most of our income on food. Like the only thing we buy is food. $7. Oh my God. How much do you remember a cereal used to be? A couple dollars at most, not yeah. seven. And gas is going up. So I like the cost of sustaining the average middle income family in America. I mean, I'm sure everyone is feeling it across the spectrum. Before the COVID pandemic started in 2019, the average price of gas was $2.60. Right now, that average price is $3.82. At least in Seattle, um, the cost of gas the whole year has hovered around five and sometimes as high as $6 a gallon. It's just gutting to spend $70 to fill up the tank. But rent has had perhaps the single biggest impact on most working people. Median U.S. rent has risen from $1,629 in June of 2019 to $2,029 in June of this year, a 25% increase. The rent, as they say, is just too damn high. I, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I, I spend about, I would say, 35 to 40% of my income on rent. But I think like one in three New Yorkers actually spend um, over half their income on rent, which is just a, a insane statistic. What's the statistic? You're supposed to spend like a third of your income on rent. I don't know anyone who that's the case. I'll say, I just found out I'm pregnant recently. And um, having kids is expensive, and I would love to have a house and be able to like have a place for my kid to play in the yard and have their own room, and that's just not gonna happen here. In both my kids' classrooms, they've had to basically read books about kids being homeless and living in cars, and they've had to have that as part of the classroom discussion because it is common. Like, it is common for kids to have to, you know, live in cars or couch surf between between being able to find a place to rent that is affordable for a family. And, you know, lots of them have had friends that have moved out of state because they can't afford housing. And for that to become so normal that it has to be a part of classroom conversation uh, is like, it's really disheartening. Evictions have soared by more than 50% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Housing affordability in terms of the ability to afford a mortgage to buy a house is at the lowest level in U.S. history, according to Taylor Marr, deputy chief economist at Redfin Real Estate. Four out of five market-listed homes are unaffordable for half the U.S. population. Mortgage interest rates have more than doubled. So when it comes to all this Bidenomics just thumping, ordinary Americans have just not been feeling it. Poll after opinion poll over the last many months reveals that American working people are quite frustrated and anxious about the economy. For example, in a September poll by Suffolk University, Sawyer Business School, and USA Today, nearly 70% of U.S. residents say the economy is getting worse, not better. The majority of respondents used words like horrible, awful, bad, and shambles to describe the economic situation. Like after rent, after groceries, after bills, after student loan payments, people have maybe like a hundred dollars left. And where does that leave the quality of life? Going out to eat with friends, um, you know, going to shows, maybe sports games. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's not working for, for anybody. Like Reaganomics wasn't good and Bidenomics sure isn't good. I, I don't think that the, um, the Democratic Party's uh, sales job on 
Bidenomics has gone very well. That should hardly come as a surprise with the skyrocketing cost of living, and it's not come out of nowhere. Biden's American Recovery Act in early 2021 carried out a number of stimulus measures which the establishment was forced to do in response to the extreme crisis during the pandemic. Of course, during the pandemic, when the economy really collapsed in 2020, they had to take significant measures. They took measures that were the so-called stimulus measures that were much more significant than uh, than they did in 2008, 2009. It was, a, it was a somewhat different sort of crisis because literally millions of people were suddenly without work. So they put money in people's pockets. Of course, most of the money went to big business uh, in the various stimulus packages, but they did, you know, they did send people checks. They went a bit further with things like um, the moratorium on student debt and uh, particularly the, uh, the child tax credit, which significantly temporarily cut um, child poverty. The expansion of the child tax credit increased the yearly amount from $2,000 to between $3,000 and $3,600 per child. Families of more than 80% of American children received these essential funds. This led to a stunning 20 to 25% reduction in child poverty, bringing it to its lowest level on record, demonstrating how desperately needed these measures are. Yeah, we were getting um, an additional $600 a month which was huge. People were spending it on food. They were spending it so that their kids could go to after school activities, so that their kids could have like a nice thing and have like a piano lesson or something. But this child tax credit expansion was taken away after just six months. Blink and you could have missed it. The whiplash effect of this has seen the poverty rate for children more than doubling from a historic low of 5.2% in 2021 to 12.4% in 2022, erasing all of the record gains made in just six months against child poverty, especially disproportionately for Black and Latino children. I don't know anyone with kids who isn't in a far worse position because of of this and just mad about it like everyone i know that lost the tax credit like lost that child tax credit absolutely blames the democrats on that the actual things that really made a difference in people's lives have been rescinded the annual getting paid in america survey by payroll org found that 60 percent of americans are living paycheck to paycheck this year and that goes up to 76 percent among those earning less than fifty thousand dollars a year there was a, a recent study by the Federal Reserve in San Francisco uh, that showed that 90% of Americans now have have no savings. I mean, people did, sections of the population did save money during the pandemic, especially if they were able not to go into work so they didn't have to spend money commuting and buying lunch and, you know, they weren't traveling much. But that that's gone. There's 10% of the population, yeah, that still has uh, savings. And many of them have done pretty well over the last few years. But a very large part of the U.S. population now is just, uh, you know, has reached a certain limit in terms of what they're able to do. And if it wasn't for the fact that uh, unemployment is still very low, then I think we'd already be in a recession. And then add to this picture that credit card debt is at the highest level since 2009. And uh, I think this, these, some of these things I'm talking about are part of what explains this huge gap in people's perception of the situation. This is what life looks like for most working and young people. And it's why they're not buying Biden's sales pitch. This has become a giant headache for the Democrats as they head into election year. The harder the Democrats and their media spokespeople try and fail to convince working people how good they have it, 
the more loudly they complain that ordinary Americans just don't seem to get it. Uh, the challenge that we have as an administration is we've got to let people know who brung it to them. <laughs> That's our challenge. But it is not that the work we are doing is not very, very popular with a lot of people. She blames the disconnect in part on lack of media coverage. Still, the vice president herself is not very popular now. MSNBC talking head Joe Scarborough wrote a piece a few days after the 4th of July for The Atlantic titled, America is doing just fine. In it, he informed us all that we were insufficiently patriotic to think otherwise and that, quote, your country is doing pretty damn well, end quote. As I was going through the 4th of July reading, it was, oh, 75% of Americans think we're going in the wrong direction. I could find another poll, though, that says 75% of Americans say their economic uh, standing is good or excellent right now. And, and there's, this, there's this bizarre disconnect between perception and reality. And basically, Democratic politicians want to claim that if you don't appreciate everything Biden has done for you, the only plausible explanation is that you're under the influence of Fox News or other pro-Trump fake news outlets. Of course, no one's surprised that Republican voters are more likely to believe negative news about the economy with a Democratic president up for re-election, but that entirely misses the point. Only 28% of Americans said they were very or somewhat satisfied with the state of the economy in a new NBC poll. Biden's economic approval rating sits at 37%. And notably, Bidenomics is least popular of all, with only 26% of those polled saying it has been good for the economy. This rejection by American people is based on their own experience of being crushed by the cost of living. It's not about the persuasion powers of Fox News as some Democrats pretend. Working people don't need to be told the economy is bad. We're living in it. One of the things the salespeople for Bidenomics like to talk about right now is inflation. And in this, they have an ally in liberal economist, Nobel Prize winner, and 22-year columnist for the New York Times, Paul Krugman, who recently tweeted, the war on inflation is over. We won at very little cost. And for sure, inflation has gone down recently since recording some of the highest levels in U.S. history in 2021 and 2022. The inflation rate was close to 10% last year, and now it's at about 3.7%. But look carefully at the graph Krugman is using. It's inflation minus food, rent, and gas. In other words, he's leaving out some of the things that matter most to ordinary people in their day-to-day -day lives and take up most of their paychecks. Let's not forget that a 3.7% inflation rate still means prices are going up. And this is at a time when people still have not recovered from the devastating blows to the cost of living since COVID began. And also, when inflation was at 10% last year, working people's wages didn't go up at 10%. Many workers did receive a raise sometime in the past year, but that didn't make up for the 40-year high inflation levels. In fact, in a rare honest moment from corporate executives, a December survey of chief financial executives revealed that total wage increases last year came in below the inflation rate. There's more to this story about inflation. Prominent Wall Street economists like Paul Donovan, who is UBS Global Wealth Management's chief economist, have been forced to admit that the massive cost of living crisis is at least partly the result of corporations raising prices simply because they can and no one is stopping them. The word for this is greedflation. And this economist is just telling working people what we already knew. We view a little bit of inflation as always good in our business. We would expect to be able to pass that through. And as I've said before, 
you know, inflation has been a little bit of our friend in terms of what we see as retail pricing. We want to make sure that we're not leaving any pricing on the table. We'll take as much pricing as the consumer can absorb. And we know if we need to take more pricing, we have room to do it. To date, we've seen no resistance from our customers. One of the most stunning examples of greedflation is the alleged price fixing, we're all supposed to use the word alleged, that corporate landlords have carried out by using rent-setting software from a company called RealPage, as revealed by multiple major lawsuits. The Seattle-focused lawsuit notes that these landlords today control roughly 60% of the apartments in the city's key areas. The so-called free market isn't determining rent. Instead, it's this software which tells corporate landlords exactly how much blood it thinks they can squeeze out of their tenants. And it gets worse. Not only is it true that giant corporations like Invitation Homes, AMH, and Avalon Bay own the majority of rental homes in most major cities. On top of that, these big corporations in turn are owned by a few Wall Street behemoths that are worth trillions and trillions of dollars, such as Vanguard and BlackRock, Norgus Bank, and Geode Capital Investments. If the names BlackRock and Vanguard sound familiar to you, it could be because they are among the principal owners of Norfolk Southern, one of the railroad corporations responsible for the massive disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this year. These mega investment firms control trillions of dollars of the wealth of global capitalism and have control over the vast majority of the largest corporations. All around, the wealthiest corporations are making bank while working people get screwed. Amazon's 2023 third quarter profits tripled from $2.9 billion to $9.9 billion. The company's CEO, Andy Jassy, has been boasting about how these eye-popping profits came, in part as a result of quote-unquote restructuring and cost trimming, which included laying off 27,000 workers and pushing warehouse workers to new, even more frantic limits. This is not the first time Amazon has reported massive profits, of course. It's been raking them in since the pandemic began. There was $13 billion in revenue from, from Prime. None of that money was reinvested into the employees with meaningful raises. Equipment is still breaking down at Amazon. By having so much freight in such a confined space that we don't have the functioning equipment to keep up with, it's really putting a strain on people. Things have only really gotten worse in a lot of ways, and uh, I think that that... that uh, Revenue has just been pocketed by the, by the people at the top. The richest 1% grabbed nearly two-thirds of all new wealth created since 2020, worth $42 trillion, which is almost twice as much money as the bottom 99% of the world's population, said a January Oxfam report. So a billionaire gained roughly $1.7 million for every dollar of new global wealth earned by a person in the bottom 90%. This is, of course, despite the fact that it's the bottom 90% of us that created all that wealth through our labor. And an annual survey shows that the average CEO of an S&P 500 listed company earned $16.7 million last year, the second highest amount ever recorded in the survey. Assuming an average career of around 45 years before retirement, that means an ordinary employee would have to work six lifetimes to earn the same as their CEO did last year. This is the kind of stuff the ruling class would prefer we weren't thinking about as we are paying five bucks for a dozen eggs. The reality is working people are making less um, under Biden. Um, it, you know, if you just look at the basic statistics for, um, for instance, uh, median wages in the U.S. or median household income, if you look at what the typical person uh, is making in the U.S. economy, 
Um, they've been making less over the past few years. I think everyone's noticed that when they go to the grocery store, uh, things are more expensive. Um, just everything's more expensive. You know, the Biden administration can say, well, you know, the economy's growing, more people have jobs. But yeah, the reality is that in, in real terms, people are making less and um, people aren't happy about it. You know, there, there was a poll that came out recently uh, where 75% of Americans said they felt like they were in a recession. Um, you know, that, that's how bad the, the U.S. economy is right now. The massive gap between corporate profits and the cost of living crisis facing working people has helped to lead a resurgence of labor struggles, as we've covered here in the On Strike broadcast. In these strikes, cost of living adjustments, or COLA, have been a running theme in the workers' demands. As UAW reform leader Sean Fain has been saying, record profits mean record contracts meaning that if billionaires can make a killing of the auto industry, then the workers actually making the company run, actually building the cars, ought not to be getting killed by inflation in the meantime. Well, so this point about profits is kind of curious because normally inflation, a higher inflation would cut into profits, but um, as well as into, into wages. But what we've seen in the last while is record profits. Absolutely, uh, this is part of what's of what's driving workers at at Ford, for example, and um, at UPS to stand up and you know demand um, a bigger share. You know the the argument that the capitalists had that well, you know we're basically unprofitable or uncompetitive, and that's why givebacks have to happen and concessions have to happen, which uh, trade union leaders went along with for decades. This has been blown out of the water because working people can see the staggering level of profits that have been made. So far this year, as of October 30th, there have been 335 labor actions in 550 locations across the U.S. This is a crucial development. It means that rather than feeling depressed about the never-ending squeeze of the cost of living and how Biden has done nothing to change this, working people have begun taking action to win real gains. And it's not just that working people are super angry at the billionaires right now. The fact is that working people also have more leverage to fight back. This is because of the current high employment levels. This has been coupled with an increased reluctance from working people to accept oppressive working conditions. A Pew Research Center survey last year found that low pay, a lack of opportunities for advancement, and feeling disrespected at work were the top reasons why Americans quit their jobs in 2021, a phenomenon that came to be known as the Great Resignation. This means that in the context of high employment, the bosses can't afford to risk losing workers, whereas workers can be more confident of finding a new job. So workers going on strike have more ability to force concessions, if and when we use it to the fullest. How much workers are able to force concessions, however, is heavily based on the threat of a strike. And in the case of an actual strike taking place, how strong that strike is, how much it cuts into the boss's profits. On this broadcast, we've talked about how we'd like to see Sean Fain escalate the strikes at the big three automakers toward shutting down production entirely, because we wanted to see UAW workers win as much as possible by making the auto bosses hurt as much as possible. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But first, congratulations are in order to the thousands of UAW workers and to Sean Fain. Workers still need to vote on whether to approve these tentative agreements, but it appears that very important gains have been made. All three of the U.S. label automakers have now agreed to 25% wage increases over the period of the 4.5-year contract. This is a major victory. 
the wage increases in these contracts are four times bigger than in the 2019 deal. And there are other gains. Most importantly, the union prioritized raising the pay of the lowest paid workers, which is a huge step toward erasing the viciously divisive system of tiers, having different workers getting paid dramatically different amounts for doing exactly the same work side by side on the production line or in other parts of the same industry. For example, UAW's website shows how Ford workers who are currently making only pennies over $18 an hour will see immediate pay increases to $24.91 an hour and will be on the same wage scales as legacy workers three years from now, more than doubling their existing pay versus over eight years or never under the old contracts. Workers strike back activists have interviewed workers on Stellantis picket lines who were classified as temporaries for more than 20 years. According to news reports, these workers will see raises of as much as 165% under this contract. All of this shows that when workers fight, they can win. That we don't have to accept the crumbs on offer. That we can turn over the boss's table instead. This is a breakthrough victory, and we think it should be taken as a sign by workers in the U.S. and globally that they can do this too. Just as the Writers Guild showed a few weeks ago with their historic victory, which we covered in a previous OnStrike episode. The message is clear. The UAW strike grew to include more than 45,000 workers from GM, Ford, and Stellantis at nine assembly plants. What was won was won because the strike cost the big three automakers billions of dollars. Ford publicly reported that UAW's 41-day strike cost them alone an estimated $1.3 billion, effectively wiping out about $1.2 billion in third quarter net profits for the corporation's wealthy shareholders. This is the central reason why the big three auto companies conceded to 25% increases. Of course, the role of OnStrike is to provide a serious analysis for working class people about how to beat the bosses. And in order to make a serious assessment of a given strike, to learn lessons for future struggles, we also have to ask not just what was won, but what it was possible to win, and not just what was done, but what could have been done. In the run-up to the strike, the UAW leadership promised to reverse the losses of past concessionary contracts. But as many workers are pointing out in a lot of unofficial social media groups, at the end of this contract, the top pay rate will still be less in terms of purchasing power than what it was in 2006. In those same 41 days of the strike, UAW could have cost Ford much more than $1.3 billion if all the plants had been shut down thus putting much more pressure to win something closer to UAW's demands, which just in terms of wages was 46%, not 25%. And that limitation shows in some of the other details of the contract. The proposed contract doesn't include a return to all workers getting pension and retiree health care. Needless to say, it also does not include victories on the most far-reaching demands put forward by UAW, like a 32-hour work week. The pro-business automotive news reports, quote, Fane's selective strike, which in the end closed nine assembly plants and 38 parts distribution facilities, still allowed roughly two-thirds of the automakers' plants to continue to churn out cars. We are expecting minimal issues with factories getting back up to speed, Jonathan Smoke, chief economist for researcher Cox Automotive, said, adding that inventory levels at dealerships held up reasonably well during the strike, end quote. Ford estimates that the deal will increase its labor costs by $850 to $900 per vehicle, reducing margins by just six or seven-tenths of a percentage point. And it says something that Ford managed to still post a third-quarter net profit, 
and that its third quarter adjusted earnings still rose 22% despite the strike. In reality, given their record profits, Ford could certainly have afforded to give up far more than six or seven tenths of a percentage point. Of course, none of that changes the fact that this is a historic victory by the American working class brought to us by UAW auto workers, and we are all in debt to them for their courageous strike. These major concessions show what can be won if workers exercise our power. At the same time, the strike also hints at how much more can be won if this power is fully leveraged and mobilized with the strongest possible strikes. Crucially, this has the potential to open the floodgates for further strikes and class struggle. It is an opening to rebuild a fighting labor movement in the U.S. At the big three, the next major battle needs to be over electric vehicle production because the transition to EVs is being used by the auto bosses to attempt to break the union by moving EV production to non-union plants. While there are many victories in the proposed contracts, this issue remains as an ominous threat to UAW and the whole labor movement with the assistance of the Biden administration, which has done nothing to defend against this anti-worker attack in his infrastructure bill. This victory needs to also be the beginning of a real drive to organize all the non-union auto production in the U.S., including especially the non-union EV automakers like Tesla. Workers in these companies can now see that there's a real advantage to a union contract as their wages are so far behind those of UAW workers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, over a million workers work in the manufacturing side of the auto industry. 146,000 of them are in UAW. So there's plenty of room to grow. The union needs to strike while the iron is hot and show the way to rebuilding a real fighting labor movement that the working class of this country needs. We need to throw the Bidenomics salesmanship in the garbage and replace that with working class power and wage increases that go beyond inflation, cut into the profits of the billionaires and overturn this rotten status quo. The beginnings of a turnaround for the labor movement harken back to early in the last decade before I was myself first elected to office as an open socialist. Back in 2011, there was the Occupy movement, which gave expression to the widespread outrage working and young people were feeling about the extreme wealth inequality under capitalism and at the suffering as a result of the 2008 Great Recession. Under Democratic President Barack Obama's watch, the major banks and the big corporations and the millionaires and billionaires that own them were bailed out and saved from the global economic collapse. These were the very same people whose system brought about the crisis. The burden of the recession was placed squarely on the shoulders of hundreds of millions of ordinary people internationally, including tens of millions of ordinary Americans. One interesting protest during Occupy happened at Harvard University against economics professor N. Gregory Mankiw. Mankiw, like most economists, is staunchly pro-capitalist and in favor of policies that are devastating for working class people while further enriching the billionaires. Dozens of students in Mankiw's Economics 10 course organized and carried out a walkout from his class, saying, quote, We are walking out today to join a Boston-wide march protesting the corporatization of higher education as part of the global Occupy movement. Since the biased nature of Economics 10 contributes to and symbolizes the increasing economic inequality in America, we are walking out of your class today both to protest your inadequate discussion of basic economic theory and to lend our support to a movement that is changing American discourse on economic injustice. 
end quote. Students around Boston are marching at 1230 to protest high student debts and cuts to public education, things like that. Issues that tend to affect, you know, public school students more than Harvard students. We want to stand with them in solidarity. They did this because they rejected the version of Bidenomics that existed at the time with Obama and the White House, which told working people that they should be happy about the crumbs on offer at the time and that the massive bailout of the banks was something they should be okay with that what was good for the banks and the capitalist economy was good for them. And those who protested as part of the Occupy movement didn't buy that line of bullshit then, any more than workers and young people are buying Bidenomics today. As some of our viewers may know, Shema was formerly a professor of economics, though she taught a very different version of it than N. Gregory Mankiw. Shema, what would you say about the claims most economists make that what they teach is scientific and apolitical? I would say that everything is political. Capitalist economics is a social science, and there are definitely parts of it that working people can make use of, which will be useful even for analyzing and planning in a future socialist society. But it also plays a systemic role as an ideological defense of capitalism. That role is to provide pseudoscientific cover for the worst aspects of the system. Historically, economics has been used to argue against any form of minimum wage in favor of child labor, against any form of environmental regulation, and against basically any and every demand for equality. There is a profound twisting of the mathematics and equations of this social science to try to block any gains for working people and to exploit us in the most vicious ways possible. They go into overdrive during periods of recession when they need to justify bailing out the very corporations and billionaires who are responsible for the crises in the first place, as they did during the Great Recession. The question will be how working people see through the lies and refuse to accept shouldering the burden of the crisis. So they have raised the interest rates, and we do think that the, uh, the recession is still on its way. And what that will mean will be a significant increase in unemployment with tens of millions of working people already stretched with no savings. This will be a major blow. Um, and it's going to also have a certain effect temporarily in cutting across um, the, the development of the class struggle that we've seen, uh, where we are seeing workers making some real gains. It will be a shock, but it's also in the context of so many shocks that have happened over the last 15 years. It'll be the, the third major crisis uh, that ordinary people have seen. In that time, first, the, the financial crisis of 2008-9, which led to millions losing their jobs, millions losing their homes, the 2020 uh, economic collapse, which was truly devastating. I mean, I'm sure many people watching this will remember the huge lines uh, at, at food pantries around the country. We're not saying it's exactly going to be like that. I mean, that you can have less severe uh, recessions than that, and we don't know what the severity will be. Um, but we are in a period of uh, extreme uh, instability in the capitalist system uh, globally. And therefore, that's a, that's a part of the reality. And working people are waking up to how unstable the, uh, the situation is. There will need to be a reckoning. And that reckoning is developing right now. Millions of working and young people globally are recognizing the lies of the corporate media and their bosses whole retinue of professional apologists like pro-corporate economists and establishment political parties. Millions are seeing the system is not working for us. And part of the goal of On Strike and Workers Strike Back is to do what we can to help bring those days of reckoning closer 
by supporting workers in getting organized to fight back in the most powerful ways possible. A critical task is fighting to build a new party for working people because neither Biden and the Democrats nor Trump and the Republicans represent our interests. We also just see right now how wide open that space is. Not, it's not just that Biden is unpopular. It's not just that Trump is unpopular. It's that a majority of Americans want to see another party because they're disappointed with uh, the role uh, that, that both parties are playing. Uh, it's that uh, a historic number of Americans are um, uh, dissatisfied with the actions that are being taken in Palestine uh, uh, in you know shoring up the Israeli war machine. They are crying out <laughs> for another option. Uh, and it's just so obvious that one is needed, right? I think that should happen. I think that we do need to topple everything that's already happened and rebuild with our new economics in mind. People are tired of the Republican-Democrat two-party system. We've been wanting to see an independent third party come up, and if, if it was a party that recognized the rights of workers to sustain themselves and find success, that'd be amazing. We need it. So. Yeah. On Strike is a production of Workers Strike Back a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Worker Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people. Find out more at workerstrikeback.org and donate. And look for us on Patreon to support our work. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people, funded entirely by working people. See you next week. Solidarity.